Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Max Minute, where we've got it licked with Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 56, which begins with the mechanic offering an estimate on repairs, and it ends with Max trying to calm everybody's expectations. (laughs) We start off this minute with... The mechanics assistant completing his question, what does that mean? I know we talked about it last week, but it was cut off halfway through, and now we're finishing it here. And the mechanic doesn't really waste any time. He looks back at his assistant, he says, 24 hours. Mechanics assistant goes, 24 hours? Almost like a question, seeing if Papagallo is okay with that estimate. The mechanics assistant here seems very unsure about this part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. He sounded good. On Friday's minute, when he was talking about the things that were wrong, he sounded like he more or less knew what he was talking about. Yeah. But now he's transitioned to having no idea (laughs) what he's talking about. A realistic time frame for when all these things might be fixed. Mm. Yeah, I think he's kind of stuck between two extremes. He's got two masters that he's serving. One is the mechanic, because he is the mechanic's assistant. And the other one is Papagallo, who is, of course, the head of the compound. And so he wants to have a good working relationship with one, but he also doesn't want to offer up an estimate that Papagallo isn't going to like. And I don't think Papagallo is necessarily going to chew him out based on what he says, but he does have that upward inflection at the end of his sentence that just makes it sound like a question. I don't really have anything to add. (laughs) (laughs) Well, didn't you interpret it differently in your notes? No. Really? Well, it just, it makes him sound very unsure. And (laughs) I really don't have anything to add. I know there are some people that cannot stand when people do that on podcasts. I can think of one person in particular, and they're the main reason I'm still doing that. But I wanted to switch tracks a little bit and talk about the idea of making estimates on when projects will be done. Because the mechanic is very quick in his quote for how long it's going to take to fix this truck and i went on mindtools.com where they describe a four-step process for estimating how long a project is going to take so step one you understand what's required step two you order the activities that you need to do and when they need to happen step three you decide who you need to involve and then step four you go ahead and make your estimate. Now, if you don't have all day and you want to just quote something quick, you do the good old rule of thumb, estimate how long it's going to take to finish your task, then double it and add 30 minutes, and then you're done. (laughs) I like that. So the mechanic pops out 24 hours. They shout it across. Zeta looks back at Papagallo. Papagallo looks up at Zeta and says, they've got 12. So Zeta shouts back across, you've got 12. Mechanic's like, Okay. Hmm. And I love the mechanic's assistant because he responds with, okay. <laughs> he is a delightful creature, isn't he? Mm-hmm. 
in researching for this minute, I tried to find other movies and TV who had that similar situation where a time frame is given for work to be done and then it gets sliced in half. And mm -hmm. I felt like that was a common trope. Yeah. That I should be able to go find. It sounds like something you should be able to call up tvtropes.com and just find a list. Right. Well, I did that and I couldn't find it on the list. <laughs> and then I also kind of reverse engineered that and I found a list of tropes that are in Mad Max and also was not on the list. Huh. And so I'm kind of left to my own devices on where I've seen that thing before. And I think the most common place that I can recall is Star Trek. Yeah? Like both, which one? Both the original series and Next Generation. I can't give you specific examples, but it does seem like repairs need to happen. But there's also another emergency going on. Yeah. So they need the ship to travel somewhere or to have weapons up or something like that. And, you know, it's going to take them two days to fix it. Well, you have three hours. That yeah. Kind of that sounds like a very Kirk thing. Yes. The yeah. idea that he's given an estimate on how long it's going to take to do something and, and he, he just decides, well, that doesn't work with my time schedule. Right. I want you to do it in this amount of time. Yep. <laughs> Classic Kirk. Wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> So from the mechanic and his assistant, we shift back to Papagallo and the other dwellers around him are looking to move him off of that platform so they can actually address the arrow in his leg. And into this scene, I wouldn't say stumbles the warrior woman, but oh. Virginia very unceremoniously just steps over Papagallo like yeah. he's a pile of potatoes. Yeah, yeah, she does. She even puts her hand on his shoulder to steady herself. Mm-hmm. She does kind of like barrel into the scene and just, she barrels through the scene. Yeah, she is on her way to relieve Max from the flamethrower, which I don't remember anyone necessarily making that decision, telling her, hey, you know, get on that flamethrower and give Max a break. Yeah, it seems like she made that decision herself. Which I can understand. It's one of the main things that she does in the compound is get on that flamethrower. She's yep. one of the more combative members of the compound dweller group. I mean, her name is literally the warrior woman. So it makes sense that she'd want to get back into that position nice and quickly. One thing she kind of forgets about, though, as she's climbing over Papagallo, she drops her glove. She's got that one long cuffed glove that she wears and she just drops it on the ground. I saw the glove on the ground, but I didn't pay it close enough attention to where it came from. But now that you say that it's warrior woman's, it makes sense because it's like slim and feminine. Well, unless you're stone. If you remember our hiatus episodes when we were talking about Stone, the main character of Stone had long, cuffed, white leather gloves, this very similar true. to what Warrior Woman wears. Nice remembering. Yeah. So Warrior Woman, Virginia, she gets up on the platform where the flamethrower is, and she has to do this thing. You can tell the platform's not very big. She has to put her hands on his shoulders and then slide in behind him to get into position. And I feel like that's probably the most physical contact he's had with a woman ever since, like, Jesse died. Oh, jeez. We saw the last time that he was at all, like, physical with a woman. It was that horrible kissing scene <laughs> next to... <laughs> the station wagon yeah it was pretty awkward and they showed so it again bad. at the beginning of this movie yeah. but 
Yeah, it's been a long time. And I think if this were a movie directed by literally anybody else besides George Miller, there probably would have been a forced romance between these two characters. I think so. It was an intimate sort of move to slide up behind somebody like that. A lot of physical contact. Mm -hmm. And also, skipping ahead just a few seconds, as Max is walking away, Virginia watches him walk away. Max is getting down from the flamethrower. Virginia has taken her position on the turret, for lack of a better term, and she stops him. I think she reaches out and grabs his arm or stops him in some way, but he turns to look back at her and she says, listen, I was wrong about you and I'm sorry. And it's nice to know that Virginia no longer considers Max to be one of them, mercenary trash trading in human flesh. Yeah, I had questions about this apology. Mm -hmm. My instinct is to say that she shouldn't have to apologize for something that she was following her own instincts and she was following the evidence in front of her. Oh, it was completely justified. It was, yeah, it was absolutely justified. So I went online looking to, and this is like the source of all bad science. I went online looking to validate my own opinion that I already had. And I didn't do that. I found an article about things you shouldn't have to apologize for. So I'm like, oh, that is right. Exactly what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And there were a few paragraphs that I want to read. This is a uh, quote, saying I'm sorry and apologizing for things that aren't completely your fault is not a bad thing. It doesn't make you weak or a pushover. On the contrary, the ability to apologize is a positive human trait. It is one of the building blocks of emotional intelligence and reflects strong interpersonal skills. When you say you're sorry, it doesn't necessarily mean you're accepting blame for a situation. Rather, it is a way of acknowledging that the other person was hurt in some way, regardless of whose fault it was. Hmm. That kind of really set my mind at ease that she wasn't accepting blame for misjudging him. Yeah. She's just sorry that he was misjudged. Right. Because no one... it caused him... I mean, he wasn't hurt physically. It caused him to be accosted and held captive. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody likes being misjudged at a glance. No one likes being cast in a bad light. And even not so much being cast in a bad light, just being misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And Max is a very chiseled and gruff exterior person. But at the same time, he's still human. Right. Thinking back on the situation from when he brought Nathan back to now, what he's been through and how he's handled it, he didn't really seem to mind that much. Yeah. But things could have gone better if first thing they let him speak and let them have a conversation about who he is and who he's affiliated with and his intentions for the deal that he has made. Exactly. If they had taken a moment to discover his true identity and affiliation, then things would have been a little different, maybe. Yeah, I think there was a lot of animosity when they first saw Max arrive with Nathan in tow. I think they had a lot of assumptions. I think there were a lot of prejudices that were coming from the compound dwellers. I think Max has a lot of pride, so he wasn't equipped well to... Are you serious? ...explain himself. Saying it's, it's kind of, I don't know if Austinian is a word, but it kind of reminds me of those tropes that you see in literature and film of the first encounter misunderstanding. It's funny you say that. I don't necessarily agree with you, but let's go on that track. That's how romantic comedies start. Yeah. And this is most definitely not a romantic comedy, but in this moment you can see seeds where one could possibly have started. So in an alternate reality, we could have had 
Mad Max to The Road Warrior be the exact same movie all the way up through the initial attack on the compound and the scouts going out and Max rescuing them. But as soon as he gets to the compound, the whole thing could have turned into a romantic comedy. Yeah. I'm not saying that would have been a good thing. Right. (laughs) It kind of makes me wonder if someone has actually done that, like made a post-apocalyptic romantic comedy. Oh, well, I'm sure they have because, you know, every movie's already been made. That's why we're only doing sequels and reboots now. Oh, it, it, that's a good point. Max doesn't really respond to Virginia's apology. He just kind of looks at her. Yeah, he responds in a very Maxian, if that's a word. Yeah. Let's make it up words today. He responds in a very Maxian way. He responds by not scowling at her. Yeah. His face stays pleasant. And that's all the reaction we get. Yeah, he's not exactly the kind of person that's going to formally say, why, thank you, madam. I accept your apology and I apologize for the gruff way in which I blah, 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 (laughs) blah. They're not posh like that. (laughs) No. Certainly not. One detail that really stood out to me is the one that you mentioned before, the fact that as Max turns to leave, if you pay attention to Virginia Hayes' eyes, they drift down. Yeah, she's scanning. Yeah, she totally checks out his butt in those leather pants that he's wearing Mm -hmm. as he's walking away. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Not that I can blame her. I definitely noticed back a few minutes ago, I believe it was last week sometime, when the battle was raging and Max jumped up on top of the bus gate and like did a roll thing. Mm -hmm. We got a really nice shot of his leather clad butt. (laughs) And it was it's very nice. Now, if I remember right, we also got several shots of Wes's non-leather not... clad butt. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. His not leather clad butt doesn't really do it for me. Yeah. It's yeah. weird because he's wearing that like wasteland thong mm-hmm. underneath his flap. Underneath his flap. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think flaps on dudes. I mean, time and place. I mean, there's just so much trust going on that it's going to, for the most part, stay in place. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it works out. We see the flap a lot throughout this movie. And for the most part, most of the time, it's covering what it needs to cover. Right. So it's doing its job. But I feel like having a flap leaves your modesty up to fate. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bold style choice. I'll give you that. Well, Wes is not lacking in the bold style choice department. Exactly. When Max hops down from the turret, I'm pretty sure he bumps the camera. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, there's a there's a wiggle in the camera. Like a jostle? Yeah, there's a jostle. And at first I thought it was just him jumping down onto the same platform that the camera is on. Yep. And jostling it that way. But the timing's not quite right. The timing is right for him to, like, check it with his shoulders. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Considering that everything in the compound was built physically and they didn't necessarily build specific platforms and things for the cameras to sit on, if that camera wasn't on a crane and just being held by, like, Dean Semler, mm-hmm. of course Max is trying to move and then he probably bumps into him. I like that you caught that because I completely missed it. (laughs) We get next a nice wide high angle of the courtyard. We see Papagallo being carried over to the medical tent. And then we see Max walk around the bus gate. And I think you said in your notes... It's the first time he's able to walk around unmolested. 
I believe so. Because I think it's at this point that he's finally interacting with these people in a way that they're not super suspicious of him. Right. He's having positive interactions. Yeah. Because even after the Lord Humongous came, addressed the compound, and then left, and he made his deal with the group... Feel like they were still looking at him warily. You know what I mean? Yes. And at that time, he probably would have been able to walk around the compound relatively freely, but it would have been under a very suspicious, watchful eye. Yeah. So, not so freely. But he's walking tall. He's making pretty much a beeline for the black on black. And Dog is there walking along beside him. The feral child falls in step behind him. And there's a large group of people, and these were, I think, the same that were talking to the gyro captain, right? Yeah, it was mostly the same group. But they saw Max walking up, and it's the curmudgeon that speaks primarily at first. He says, ah, it's been a long time since I've seen driving like that, man. You're okay by me, son. With you driving that rig, we got it licked. Nice to have you aboard, son. And I feel like these compound dwellers are making a lot of assumptions. Oh. Oh, yes, they are. Mm -hmm. They went from one extreme to the other of hating him and not trusting him and assuming that he is there to screw them over in some way to fawning all over him. And I can imagine, we don't see it, but I can picture in my head like them petting him. <laughs> like, oh, you're the one that brought us the rig. You're going to save us. Mm -hmm. There's one unnamed compound dweller that grabs Max's hand and is like shaking it vigorously mm. with both of his hands. Mm -hmm. And the one person in this scene that really stands out to me is the feral child because the feral child runs up behind Max and Dog and you can see him trying to, I guess, walk in time with Max. Which is a behavior we have seen before. We've definitely heard about it before. When Max and Jesse were lying by the river back in Mad Max 79, Max was talking about how he would go on long walks with his father and how his father had shiny shoes and he would take long strides. And when they were walking together, that's when Max felt the most connected to his father. Mm. And so the fact that the feral child is there trying to mimic Max, trying to emulate his movements, it called me back to that scene because we're going to see in the next several minutes. I don't know if it's this week. It might be next week. I'm not entirely sure when. But the feral child has pretty much decided that he wants to stick with Max no matter what. And it also reminds me of back in minute 26 when the feral child first met Max and they were walking towards the compound. Max had Nathan up on his shoulder and the feral child was there. Feral child was walking his own way at his own pace because he didn't know Max and didn't want anything to do with him. Well, now that things have changed, he's walking differently. Okay. I didn't agree with your assessment back then. Yeah. So I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Context is everything. Uh -huh. I like the comparison to Max relaying the story about his own father. That hadn't occurred to me. That's some really nice symmetry and connection to the previous movie. This movie gets spoken of and treated a lot like it's the original. A lot of people see it as their first Mad Max, certainly. People don't give the original Mad Max enough credit for being the story of how Max got to this point in his life. Mm -hmm. Drawing that comparison between Max and his father and the feral child and Max is a really important connection to the original movie. That if you haven't watched the original movie, 
I think you lose something there. Right. Absolutely. After the curmudgeon comes up to Max and is fawning over him, Big Rebecca comes in and she actually has a little present for Max. She gives him a couple of shotgun shells that she's been holding on to. And I've got to say, I really appreciate her waste-not-want-not sensibility because when it comes to shotgun shells, which I don't think anybody in that compound actually has a shotgun, but it's better to have and not need than need and not have, as I say way too often at work. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good motto to live by. Yeah. And I know... Us personally, it's saved our butts before. Yeah. Especially when we go camping. Exactly. This minute and this interaction really turned me around on Rebecca. Yeah? In two different ways. One, the actress. I had a growing respect for her acting ability back when she was rebelling against Papagallo. Yeah. But her acting in this scene, her interaction with Max, and then in the end when she just turns around and walks away, is top notch. Oh, yeah. It's really, really good. And it's very subtle. And the way she speaks is so clear. And she has such a nice voice. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate that about the actress that I can't remember. Something Clow. Moira Clow. Moira Clow. Thank you very much. But also Rebecca as a character. She's not afraid to... She hasn't necessarily admitted that she was wrong. But she has switched tracks. She is on board with this current plan. Right. She was rebelling against Papagallo earlier. But then a plan presented itself that might actually work and now it has gotten to a point where yeah wow this might actually work and she is on board she is giving it her all we saw her in during the battle she's the bus driver she fended off a marauder she gave it her all even though this is not what she wanted and i really appreciate that about her yeah i don't think big rebecca ever really needed to apologize for the stance that she took because at that time papagallo really didn't have a plan no he didn't and as soon as a good one presented itself to her she was like you said completely on board and i think her handing those shells over to max as a a gift as a thank you as a physical gesture you know you've given us our hope back so here is something that you might find useful Mm -hmm. i think that's more meaningful than her walking up and repeating what warrior woman said you know i'm sorry i was wrong i felt like that wouldn't have been as effective as what they showed here I think taking this as Rebecca's form of apology for how he was treated when he first came in is done very nicely. Mm -hmm. And Rebecca specifically has no need to apologize. She didn't hold a knife to him. She didn't hold a crossbow to him. She didn't advocate for his death or anything. Like (laughs) She really didn't have anything to do with that because she was busy with Nathan. Right. So in this moment when things have kind of calmed down, and this may be the first moment that she has to show some appreciation to Max for at least trying to save Nathan's life. Right. And at the very least, bringing his body back. And it's interesting because she has these motivations, but she doesn't say any of that. She says, here are some shells, thank you, and welcome. Right. I really liked the welcome part. Yeah, she's officially welcoming him into the family. He's no longer a drifter in their eyes. He is part of the team. And the last thing we see this minute is Max with his back to the camera, and he's got his hands up trying to just calm everybody down from all of the things that they're saying about him. Because as we're going to find out tomorrow, he doesn't share their opinion. 
Right. I love his movements and gesture in this moment. The words that he's about to say, we don't get any of them in this moment, but you know exactly what he's going to say because of his movements. Mm -hmm. He separates himself from the group that is currently circling him. He puts his hands up. He seems very hesitant. He doesn't want to be a part of them physically. He's separating himself. Yeah. So we know exactly what he's going to say. Max had a family. He had a social group and he lost all of those things and he's not in the market for another one. And nope. He's not going to say that exactly, but that's pretty much what the subtext is. Yep. Just one more thing before we close out. There's a handprint on Max's neck and it took me a minute to remember where that came from. But I really like that detail because yep. they really didn't have to do that. That's um from Wes. Yes. Punching through the window. And grabbing his neck. Yeah, he, ooh, Wes was trying to pull him out of that window. Yeah. And, ooh, I think he keeps those red marks on his neck for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, the movie takes place over the next, what, 12 hours? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Once things get rolling in this movie, they happen very fast. Mm hmm Anything else? From you? That's pretty much all I got. Okay. So we're going to come back tomorrow. We're going to hear what Max has to say in response to everyone's gratitude and generosity, and we'll pick up there. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com click on the support link at the top of the page and check out our patreon to help us keep the tanks full thank you for joining us for minute 56 of the road warrior see you tomorrow